This episode of Security Management Highlights is brought to you by Salient Systems, an open video data platform empowering organizations to view, record, and manage video data. Visit them at salientsys.com and booth 2130 at GSX 2022 Atlanta. We were talking about retail loss prevention. And he said, you know, I learned a long time ago, you cannot catch enough people to have good shrink. It's all about prevention. So when you talk about 4K and 8K cameras going in the store, they're, you know, they, they want all this technology in there, but they, you know, our, our retail stores aren't upgrading the circuits that they're working on. They're not upgrading their bandwidth. There's a huge cost associated with that. The fact is you've got to think through how would a bad actor take advantage of the situation and do some type of a criminal act or entry into your facility. All that and so much more on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. William A. Alford, LPC, is the co-founder and CEO of Circle the Wagons, GPO. He has over 25 years experience directing loss prevention programs for business and industry and is a member of the ASIS Retail Loss Prevention Council. Mr. Bill Alford, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you, Chuck. Glad to be here. Now, today's topic is retail asset protection, not your normal asset protection, because Bill has a great perspective on this. It's really profit protection. And when we define it that way, doesn't that sound completely different? Because security is a cost center, isn't it? Nobody ever thinks of security as getting any money back. So if we look at retail loss prevention uh, as bringing profits back to the company, I think that's a really unique way to look at it. Well, thank you. Yeah, uh, I've spent my entire career in uh, retail, no, no law enforcement, no military, it's all been retail. And I do have a unique perspective. I, I got tired, Chuck, over the years of um, other people in, in the corporations I worked in and the corporate offices saying, uh, oh, yeah, you guys are profit uh, profit takeaways. I mean, you, you, got, you guys aren't bringing any value. You just want to stop us from selling and things like that. Um, so, so early, early on, I started getting the idea of how can we bring value? How can my department, how can asset protection bring value back to the organization? And that was the thing that that has really taken over my entire career. It is a unique perspective in your vertical, isn't it? It used to be. It's not so much anymore. But when I started, it was all about my first title was security officer. Um, and it was about catching shoplifters and catching the bad guys, bad checks, uh, stopping employee theft. And it was all about theft, theft, theft. And that was the entire focus. And what that did, that pigeonholed us, Chuck. So when I would walk into a store, I'll give you an example. I walked into it. I worked at JCPenney. I was off for the weekend. I came in and the director of um, the hardware section or the appliance section looked at me and said, where in the heck were you yesterday? I said, I, I was off. He says, you guys don't do any good at all. You were gone. And someone walked out of our store with an entire air conditioner that was on display. You guys aren't worth anything. I was 19, Chuck. I had no idea. I had no comeback. I had nothing. Later on, I'm thinking, he's got five people in his department. Five people that are salespeople in their apartment. They didn't see anyone walk out, but yet he blames security for the theft. We've got to flip that. We've got to make the employees responsible for being aware, alert, talking to customers, engaging. It can't be one department that's responsible 
for preventing theft. And that was when I was like 19. And that, that started me on my path. Well, it's a great perspective. Uh, a little background on me. I was a police officer for about 15 years. I was a rookie, 1984. The warehouse, remember the warehouse of video stores back in the day? They called me up and say, oh, Officer Harold, we got this videotape. And here's the label. You know, the label's in black and white, but our labels are always in color. That's kind of weird. Long story short, I traced it all back to a guy that had 400 VCRs in his house. And he would go rent a tape from the warehouse. And then he would record 400 copies of them and sell them. And he had his own video store. And this was an early, early piracy case. And that went on for 10 years, Bill, at the DA's office because he didn't know how to prosecute it. Right? So that employee was smart enough to engage law enforcement because he thought something wasn't right. It sat in the back of his head. He called us and it turned into a, a very successful prevention of loss because they were losing thousands and thousands of videos every week to this guy. San Gabriel Valley out, out in L.A. So let's talk about your ideas yeah. and viewpoints on how to loop law enforcement and other departments into retail shrink. Because like you said, it's a team effort. And if everybody's aware and participates together, it's not a profit center. It's not a cost center anymore. It's It turns into at least a, a net neutral department, right? Maybe your department doesn't right. cost anything when you're getting the money back. Uh, Chuck, I've got a very, um, uh, bi I'm kind of biased when it comes to law enforcement. Um, I'm, I'm on the fence and I'll be totally, totally honest with you. My um, first foray into retail, I've been in retail about three or four years, and my mentor turned out to be a former Hollywood police uh, lieutenant. And he, he was hired as the head of loss prevention for uh, North Carolina at that time with a company called Revco. And I've been there for three years. And I said, this cop's coming in. What, what, you know, he doesn't know anything about retail. And I had a long conversation with him and he sat me down and he said, you know everything about retail, Bill. I don't. He was very honest. Said, I don't know retail, but I know management. I know processes. Um, and, and what I will do is I will teach you how to be a, a leader and a manager of loss prevention and of retail. If you will teach me, re uh, if you will teach me retail, he says, I'll teach you management. And that was a marriage and we stayed together for, uh, we worked together for about five years and I would not be where I'm at today if I hadn't been for that police lieutenant from Hollywood, Florida. Um, so police, br the law enforcement brings a different and unique perspective to retail. And here's where we fall, in my opinion. Retail for most law enforcement people on the, on the boots on the ground, Think of retail as, oh, no, here's another call about shoplifting or here's another you know petty thing. I've got bigger things to do. And we in retail have not done a good enough job educating the upper tiers and upper echelon of law enforcement about all the issues that we have to address right now from organized retail crime um, to uh, uh, gangs coming in and things like that. We haven't done a good enough job of educating. We've done better now. There, there are ORC um, task force all over the United States. But we are about 20 years too late coming to that party and we're playing catch up. Uh, the more law enforcement and the courts know about the struggles of retail, the better we can all work together. And we as retail, we have to lead that charge. When do retailers make the call for law enforcement involvement? Are law enforcement getting more or less involved these days? I almost think it has to be less because of COVID and personnel shortages and law enforcement it, well, retiring. It's got to be a nightmare. 
that that is a huge question and it also depends it's regionally uh in, in the country because uh larger cities have virtually stopped responding to calls from retailers unless it is a major crime or uh, a critical incident uh with uh shoplifting and other things like that sometimes if retailers do call over at horror stores where they wait an hour two hours and check they just given up um so uh, in these smaller communities the rural areas oh man it, it's fantastic there's a great relationship um but here here's where law enforcement and they're frustrated they will walk in and uh for down in florida where um we had a, a when I was theft ring, we, we caught these folks, my, my team caught these folks in the car. They had tons of merchandise from Best Buy and, and Food Line and all these other grocery store chains. Uh, that, and I worked for Cash and Carry at the time, Division of Lucky. And we called the police out and they said, well, there's no stickers. I said, what do you mean? We can't identify where this product came from. But they said it's stolen. The, the bad guy said it's stolen. They said, we can't identify it. Um, because it didn't have price stickers on it. And of course, we, 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 we had scanning at that time. Um, so they are hampered because they can't prove where it was stolen from. They said they couldn't do anything about it. And so, so law enforcement, uh, because of the organized crime, because of the complexity of the issues and the volume, a, a, when you call a law enforcement officer to the store, many times they are hamstringed by the laws. Um, and, you know, retailers want them to do something. Uh, and many times they cannot. Um, to, to go back to your question about when should they call, let me, let, me, let me step in front of that. Instead of waiting on the police to handle our issues, what I teach, what profit protection is about, is preventing the loss. Uh, so, for example, you, I'm going to use your example. You said a cashier on the front who, who underrings that toys at Toys R Us. Well, what that store, most of the time when retailers catch, quote unquote, catch a, a cashier doing that, it's by total chance, total accident. Instead, what retailers need to be doing, and, and they are doing more, is actually monitoring cashier exceptions on the front end and looking at voids, looking at refunds, looking at hand keyed items, looking at low average dollar ring. Those are metrics that everyone should be reviewing beforehand. Don't wait for it to happen. And then when you see Susie Q or Johnny G who has low average item price or some kind of anomaly, address it not to catch them, but to say, hey, I notice you're lower than anyone else. Why? And then shut up and have them tell you because all those anomalies are things that are negative and you want to change that negative behavior so they either stop doing it if they're a bad guy or if they're a good employee you teach them how to do it the right way and so yes we want to involve law enforcement but we hope we don't have to because we want to prevent it up front through a thing i call operational excellence uh, one of the my favorite questions in retail and i've had this i've done this for my whole career is i love when i have an engagement i'm walking into a retailer I work all over the united states and i walk into a, a retail uh, company. And of course, management wants to talk to me and tell me what all the problems are. And I say, guys, I'll get with you later. But right now, I want to go around. I want to talk with your employees. And the number one question I ask them is, what is stupid around here? What is something you scratch your head and go, why do we do that? And you would be amazed at what the employees tell you 
about what's really going on. That's how I start every engagement. And uh, it, it's just a goldmine of information. You, you started by, by talking about law enforcement. And if we do our job in retail, if, if retailers do their job, if law, asset protection does their job, we don't have to engage law enforcement. Our goal is not to have to engage law enforcement. And by having policies, procedures. Um, well, let me give you an example. We know theft is going to happen, Chuck. We absolutely know it in retail. We actually built it in to a thing called shrink. We have a percentage of shrink that's quote unquote allowable. We know what's going to happen. But when a theft occurs, what we want to try and do is limit uh, the time frame from the time the theft occurs to the time it's discovered. There's a window of time. And we want to keep that window of time as short as possible to mitigate our losses. And again, we we hope not to have to engage law enforcement. We hope that we can prevent it from happening. Um, and another phenomenon that's happening today is self-checkouts. Have you ever um, so have you ever walked into a grocery store or Walmart, or whatever, and went through self-checkout? Have you done that, Chuck? I do it almost exclusively. And by the way, I've caught times where the scanner doesn't hit the product, uh, you know, and I self-correct. Yep. But a lot of people aren't self-correcting on that, I'm sure. <laughs> well, and, and uh, for example, uh, Tef Tesco came over to the United States. Oh, this is eight or nine years ago, maybe 10 years ago now, with a company called Fresh and Easy. And they built like 140 stores out west. And they were all self-checkout because Tesco really is the leader of self-checkout in the UK. And they came over and said, we are going to do self-checkout everywhere. We're going to change the landscape of retailing in America. Chuck, they lost their shirts. Um, because people took advantage of, wow, I can check myself out. I don't have to scan this. Or I'll put a can of coffee on the scales and type in for the uh, the PLU code, price lookup code, 4111 for bananas. And so I got, you know, a pound of coffee for uh, a price of a bunch of bananas at, at 69 cents. And uh, retailers have started embracing self-checkouts more and more and more, but we've done it without having the technology, we've uh, without having the architecture, and also without having the proper training. Um, we just had a conference um, and Colin Peacock, who's with ECR Loss Control out of the UK, was a guest speaker. He, he zoomed in and uh, he gave us like 10 tips, things that we can do moving forward for self-checkout. And the reason it's so critical, let me give you a statistic. It was a retailer I spoke with that said during the pandemic we had to put in self-checkout we had to throw it in fast because we had to have some way of protecting our cashiers and our customers from interacting you know how that went during the pandemic so many retailers were throwing it in left and right what transpired um the, when they started tracking the numbers and this one retailer said that um it saved them about this was this is like a 22 store chain something like that it saved them three million dollars in labor costs over the year which is phenomenal however in shrink they estimate it cost them about seven million dollars from losses from videotape from apprehensions from um, uh, statistics you could get uh, off of the pos a point of sale system and so net net they lost four million dollars but they said we have to have it we are constantly playing catch up so there's no amount of merchandise that can be stolen out of a store uh, from shoplifting or losses or meat theft or things like that. If you're the front end, the point of sale with the registers 
and the self-checkouts, if we don't control that, um, those losses front, on the front end outweigh any other losses we can possibly have. So that's where a lot of retailers and asset protection departments focus their efforts on the floor and receiving at the back door. If we lock those two things down, then we can sustain all the shelf lifting there is, in, in my opinion. Bill Afford, great conversation, my friend. In fact, I've done almost 3,000 shows, and I'm going to classify this as my best, my best retail loss prevention interview. Really, you are on top wow. of it, my friend. Thank you. You are really on top of it. Excellent stuff. Thank you for coming on Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you for having me, Chuck. I really appreciate it. Great conversation. Mr. Grant Cowan, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Hey, thanks for having me, Chuck. Really appreciate it. Now, you're the director of key accounts for Salient Systems. Let's let everybody know what you guys do. Yeah, you know, so Salient, we've been around since 1995, and, and we've obviously evolved. Um, but we consider ourselves an open video data platform. And so we we play in the VMS space, and our goal day in, day out is to provide customers with a flexible video management software that allows them to grow, to adapt, change to, the, to their environments, uh, by utilizing whatever cameras they want, whatever analytics, whatever access control, uh, anything that we can be a platform for, that's what we're looking to build for our customers in the VMS space. Tell me what the number one thing Salient is helping retailers with right now. I mean, post-COVID, everything's crazy. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great question, Chuck. And and we have, you know, at the end of the day, we have a lot of customers that are asking for, you know, analytics to help with, the you know, loss prevention, asset protection, uh, you know, to, to work on, on, you know, small things that they're finding, whether it's slip and fall issues, whether it's, you know, trying to manage uh, organized retail crime. We got all, a lot of things that they're asking for, but it's funny, Chuck, at the end of the day, our customers, the reason they're coming to Salient is they're, they're looking for bandwidth management when it comes to uh, their cameras. Right now, as our, our customers are seeing, they're adopting more and more high resolution cameras. So when you talk about 4K and 8K cameras going in the store, they're, you know, they they want all this technology in there, but they, you know, our our retail stores aren't upgrading the circuits that they're working on. They're not upgrading their bandwidth. There's a huge cost associated with that. And so what we're doing and what what our customers are asking for is some sailing has done for a long time and that's it's how we manage bandwidth. Our customers are able to have a higher density of cameras. Uh, higher resolution cameras in their store and still be able to operate it with the same bandwidth that they're they're using today. Salient offers dynamic resolution scaling and it allows us to scale the video to maximize the bandwidth for each individual store when they're doing either watching live video um, or if they're doing video investigations and going back and reviewing video. So it's funny when when our customers, you know, we you know, we want to be out there in the cutting edge and we're offering analytics and we're offering different things that these customers can f- come for. But the biggest thing that they really have to, to manage is, or to, is how do they access their video? And it all comes down to, do they have enough bandwidth and is their VMS maximizing that bandwidth? And that's why the customers and our retail customers are coming to Salient saying, hey, I need a solution for this. Uh, we have more people accessing video remotely uh, after the pandemic. We have more and more uh, departments using the video, whether it's operations or marketing, and they're looking for for VMS solutions that can offer those type of bandwidth saving tools, and that's why they're coming and talking to us. Now, what is the big buzzword in real to loss prevention, uh, and what is Salient doing to respond to that? 
That's a good question. I think, you know, the biggest thing that we're hearing, whether, you know, when we're talking to our customer base out there, when we're in meetings, when we're at conferences, when we're just, you know, uh, sharing information, the word ecosystem keeps popping up. And it's it's really kind of a fun term. And I, I think this is really where, you know, every day when I get up and start working on new projects, new customers, how to take information and pass it back to our products team, our development team, it all comes down to ecosystem. And what our retailers are looking for is that for the past 10 or 15 years, as technology has really become their, their big tool uh, versus, you know, just having people in the field and, and trying to, to run down cases uh, and investigations, our retail customers are trying, they've been buying technology and they've all kind of lived in their own little silos. And so you had a, you know, uh, a technology over here. They say, Ooh, I like that. I want to put that in. And then they see another technology the next year and say, hey, we got to have that. It does this particular little piece. And now after 10 or 15 years of really buying heavily into the technology, our retail customers come back and say, hey, how can I make this all work together so I can maximize my resources? I can um, improve how my team is operating. Because the number one thing we always hear from loss prevention and asset protection folks is, hey, I got to do more with less. And how can I make my people more efficient? And so when they come to us and say, hey, you know, as a video management software, how can we build and take all the products that we're using today and put it into one single ecosystem? And that's what we're at, they're asking for. And it, with Salience, you know, since we are open uh, data platform, we believe in those integrations. We believe in taking what customers have out there and building in. So whether it's, you know, analytics, whether it's, you know, in the grocery space, cart locking software, um, maybe it's um, working with, uh, you know, license plate recognition in the parking lots, whatever that may be, we're trying to figure out a way to help our retail customers build that ecosystem. And we want to be the, you know, the, the floor, which what they're building that on top of and trying to bring everything together so that there's one, you know, data point that they can all log in and say, Hey, here are our key data points from the previous day or from today. And we want to grab all this information and build around that. And that's what we're trying to do. So when we go out there and we hear the word ecosystem, we're ready to attack with solutions that, that allow them to build that ecosystem and make their teams uh, as efficient as possible. Grant Cohen, Director of Key Accounts, Salient Systems. Visit them at salientsys.com, salientsys.com, and at booth 2130 at GSX. Mr. Grant, thanks so much for coming on the show, my friend. Good insights, and I look forward to meeting you in person at GSX. All right, sounds good, Chuck. We'll see you there. Anthony Hurley, CPP, PCI, PSP, is a partner and consultant at Critical Preparedness, LLC. Anthony Hurley, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you. Good morning. Today's topic is complex multi-crisis scenario planning and why it's worthwhile. Security is 24-7. So why aren't we always prepared, right? But I think when people hear this topic, they might think, you know, I really should do that, but... Well, I'll get to it later. It's a little complicated, right? Because we certainly can be hit by multi-factor scenarios all the time. Natural disasters bring other things. We have a hurricane. Our secondary disaster is possibly theft at your facility. Uh, a third might be injuries. It's all one giant complex scenario we have to work for all the time. Uh, we haven't had a lot of hurricanes this year, which is kind of unusual. So that's good. But of course, that means something else might happen. So anything that security professionals should anticipate 
on the horizon for uh, multi-crisis planning? I would look at, you know, having the natural disaster in a, in a scenario, and I would have an exercise with some type of a criminal act. So if you have a, let's just, again, go back to utilities. If a hurricane is approaching and you have criminals out there and they know that the utility is just going to be overwhelmed because of this hurricane, they're going to view that as a golden opportunity to get into that substation that they've been eyeing up and doing surveillance on to get in there, cut the fence, go in there and let's say steal copper or steal something from inside of there. So it's that it's that multifaceted exercise that um, that, that really is going to help prepare um, your staff because again, security is 24 seven. It doesn't stop just because there is a, there's a thunderstorm that moved into the area. It doesn't stop and probably is even enhanced by the fact that, you know, somebody is, you know, protesting past your, your, um, your building. The fact is you've got to think through how would a bad, bad actor take advantage of the situation and do some type of a criminal act or entry into your facility. And that's what we would, when we design exercises for, um, for physical security, or what we do is that we, they, we look at that so that individuals understand that that might be a golden opportunity for somebody to come into a property. Tell us what, uh, what you used to define this and where do we start to discuss this with people? Well, Chuck, really what it is, is that any corporation or uh, agency needs to be prepared for, of course, so many different natural disasters and human-caused disasters. Uh, when you take a look at it, the weather that impacts us that um, sometimes we know about, and sometimes we don't know about until it occurs. And then you take a look at just uh, a human-caused accident, a train derailment near a facility, which, can, of course, has a whole whole uh, inventory of issues. And then you take a look at, you know, um, issues and topics such as maybe civil unrest or some type of a strike. You know, security has to continue no matter what the scenario is. So if you have an organization that is in an area that's prone to hurricanes, it doesn't matter if that hurricane impacts your organization or not. Security has to continue. You still need to control the flow of uh, individuals entering your facility, you still have to protect your assets because if you don't do it, uh, certainly actions by others may compound the emergency that you found yourself in due to, let's say, natural disasters. So when I was at uh, 20th Century Fox, which is a city unto itself, there's 6,000 people there, and production has to go on 24-7. We have to keep going on the air with our live broadcasts. And I got to the point where I couldn't plan for every single scenario because I can't anticipate every scenario. So I came up with the idea that we have to have a, a state of readiness that could handle multiple scenarios, right? So help me define a state of readiness. It's, it's a very good point, Chuck. So a state of readiness is really being able to address an emergency no matter what it is, if you've practiced it or even discussed it with your staff, but being able to have individuals that know how to execute a, um, a plan, the plan that you put forth. Um, and, um, you know, when you take a look at, um, you know, individuals, I was asked to, um, to 
go to an organization and talk to them. And one of the things they wanted to talk about is what happens if some type of a, you know, domestic terrorist uh, attack their facility. And I started going through the scenario. And one of the questions I asked is that in this particular emergency operations center, uh, how many people would be in this room if um, a weather event hits your facility, hits your, um, your, your assets? And uh, everybody raised their hands in that room. And I said, so I want you to think carefully if a, ter- a domestic terrorist was to impact your organization, how many feel that they would be in the same EOC room, emergency operations center? And everybody raised their hand again. And I said, that's readiness. Um, you're ready for a storm. You're ready for different type of weather event. And you're also ready for events that you haven't practiced, but you have the staff, they're trained, they know their job. So let's take, for instance, utilities, which is what my background is. If a substation asset is knocked out because of a weather event or a substation is knocked out because vandals got inside the substation and were stealing copper, to the, to the customer, it's still the same. The lights are out. You know, it wasn't with what due to weather, but it was certainly due to other activities. The customers out there expect us to restore and recover no matter what the scenario is. And I, uh, I've i worked with companies and they're always, you know, pleasantly surprised to find that in regards to readiness, they truly are ready for those scenarios, even if they haven't practiced them specifically. Well, that's an excellent point because as you and I both know, any plan you have usually doesn't work out completely as you thought when the crisis happens, right? We're always adjusting and moving. One thing I came up with was preparing my staff personally and individually. So to your point, you know, if a hurricane happened or or a terrorist event happened, how many people would be in the EOC? Well, we had earthquakes in LA, right? So I outfitted a certain amount of my staff with emergency backpacks in their cars, had everything they needed in case they were coming or going from work they could sustain themselves. So if we didn't have any supplies, because my biggest concern was not working out a scenario and a response that's tactical, but I had to get the personnel to the site or keep the personnel at the site where they might not be able to go home. How much of, of uh, scenario planning involves making our staff personally ready? Because, you know, to your point, a lot of people can say, I ain't coming to a, uh, to my post when, uh, 9-11, I'm, I'm going to go home and stay with my family, right? That's all. Personnel shortages is always a big problem in these issues. Yeah, absolutely. And that's got to be planned for. And you have to be realistic in your planning. And, and throughout, you know, all of our interaction with, with clients, we talk to them about being realistic, um, making sure that they truly understand in a scenario what they're probably going to be facing. And the example that I will use is that uh, I had a client that, uh, their whole plan was built off of 100% of their personnel responding. And, um, you know, we, you know, all of us have a very committed workforce and and I was very blessed with the workforce that I worked with, um, you know, when I was with the utilities. And, uh, but when we went through and we started interviewing individuals, we started asking what happens if this scenario happens. And what we went back and reported was over 50% of the staff stated that they would be going home to get their families and get them out of the area. You know, their elderly parents, their, their, their spouses, their children. Uh, So what we um, had to do is work with that particular company and, you know, come to the realization that if 50% of the staff did not 
respond, what would they do? Is there non-essential um, functions that they could actually put on the back burner and do later? So they really went through and started looking at trying to figure out how they could minimize staffing. And then when there was gaps in that, how they could bring in contractors or have other individuals maybe outside of the immediate area that wouldn't be impacted by the disaster that could come in and, uh, and you know, sit in those seats and be able to operate. And that's something that's becoming more and more popular where you look at mutual aid and it used to be all about the individuals that were in the field actually doing the physical work and anymore uh, mutual aid can be, you know, having individuals come in and help augment um, emergency operations center staff, augment field supervision staff. So industry is becoming better prepared for this because of the fact is, is that it, when you do an after action report after an event and you find out that X amount of staff did not show up, now you know there's a baseline and I've got to be prepared for that. And you've got to be prepared for it through your plans and your exercises. Have you ever thought of uh, planning your emergencies for minimum staffing? I, I found sometimes that uh, worked better for me. If I could run this place with the absolute skeleton crew to make it work, I thought I'd be more successful. And of course, people more people always showed up, right? But at least if I had that minimum staffing plan, uh, it, it was more workable. You know, you're, you're, you're right. You have to go and take a look at that. You have to look at your processes. And again, one of the, the dynamic processes is just being able to look at it and truly ask, does this activity have to occur during an event? And I'll just give you an example. Um, we had a client that, you know, had, you know, they continue with payroll, they pay individuals, but what they decided is that they had some individuals working in, in their payroll human resources group that could assist other elements of the organization. And what they do is that right in their, their uh, emergency plans, they pay their employees um, in advance. So what they do is that they um, process and pay employees prior to, let's say, a hurricane come in their direction so that they get that out of the way. And then they notify all their employees that as far as the overtime goes, they're not going to be processing that until after the event. And then they can now take that, that staff that would have been normally, you know, while everybody's working storm, taking, you know, processing uh, timesheets. Now they can take that staff and move them over into other areas that are more engaged with the direct recovery of that particular organization. And companies uh, are looking at that. Uh, I'm working on something right now where I'm doing exactly that, looking for areas that, you know, and, and everybody wants their, you know, their processes and their organizations to be essential. But when you truly get down and start asking questions, um, you know, they come to the realization that, you know, this, this activity actually can be deferred until after the event. So now I've get, I have two or three staff that can be used to support activities in the emergency operations center, for instance. And companies are really taking a look at that um, much more closely. And then they're exercising it. Certainly, if you take somebody from an organization and you ask them to support an organization that they don't work with on a day-to-day -day basis, it requires training. And the exercises are a great way to for them to see what their responsibilities are and how they're going to operate in that environment. So tell me how COVID has impacted all this. I, I remember when I was in the biz, you know, the industry had about a 3% personnel shortage. In general, that was kind of common. I've heard recently 
that there could be as much as a 30% personnel shortage in the security industry. In other words, they all said, hey, I'm going to go be a barista instead. I don't want to be in security anymore with COVID going on. And of course, mutual aid helps augment that and supplement that. But do we have to look at things differently post-COVID? Has it really impacted our ability to plan for the future? Well, COVID certainly woke a lot of organizations up in regards to pandemic. Um, if you take a look at a couple of years ago when the uh, there was a uh, you know a, p- a pandemic uh, a flu about ten years ago, and it was right at the top of everybody's business continuity plans and and uh, how they had planned for an emergency. And then after a couple of years of there being no more you know um, you know more uh, drastic flus like that, it kind of fell off, and a lot of other you know incidents took its place. Uh, certainly with COVID, uh, it's right back at the top again that companies have to plan for it. So, um, yes, you have to plan for it, you, you know, to the point where, um, you know, you have to worry about how many people you, you know, put into a hotel room where you used to put two people in a hotel room, you know, when they came in for mutual aid. Now you have to consider putting everybody in their own room in case one person um, gets COVID and so on. But, the um, there was a positive out of COVID in that it became proof positive that remote work is effective. Uh, I worked with organizations where I had talked to them about, do you really need to bring this organization in during a storm because you're making them drive into work, you're making them come in during hazardous conditions, um, you're working in an environment, you've got to have logistics, find food for them, potentially a hotel close um, to come in and do a function. But when you take a look at it, what COVID's proved is that that function can be done from somebody who's based at home. And it's, you know, opened the eyes of a lot of folks where they can turn around and say, well, this whole process, I can just have everybody work from home. As long as they have um, electric and they have their internet, they can, you know, support the event from a home location. I don't have to bring them in. And, And I always like to say, you know, try to reduce the noise. You know, the less people that are in an emergency operations center or in the support uh, rooms, you know, it basically reduces the noise. It basically, you know, cuts the interaction and and uh, makes you more efficient. So what I see from COVID is it really has proven that you need to take a look and see, do you really need that person to be in your facility to be able to operate effectively? And then there's the safety aspect of it. Again, if you take a look at one of the issues that could impact you during an event, let's just say it's civil unrest for some reason. And I've had it where, you know, there's been, you know, large storms and people are upset about it. So they protest at a facility. Um, Now, if you have less people coming in the door and you have more people working from home, you're now putting less people in that environment where they have to interact with, let's say, individuals who are protesting. So there's uh, many benefits to it. And uh, it's really proven to a lot of individuals that, um, that that being able to work remotely, a remote workforce is an effective way of, of managing business functions. So mutual aid is a huge part of this. And uh, way, way long ago, when I was a peace officer, uh, mutual aid in law enforcement meant making a deal with your city next door. So Cobra City might have had a mutual aid agreement with Santa Monica PD. And to your point, if there was a civil crisis, civil unrest, then they would respond and help us. And it was very specific. You know, Santa Monica PD would do this not that. And Culver City was in charge of that. Anything new on the horizon with these sort of mutual aid agreements? 
especially post-COVID, in the security business, do we have to get to a point of formal agreements where we maybe have a, a pre-contract ready to go? Because, you know, in the middle of a crisis, we can't sit down and say, hey, can I sign a contract with you to do something? Uh, has that changed at all? Or is there any other specific legal things we need to think about uh, in doing this? I do think it's getting more specific in regards to the roles and responsibilities. When you ask for mutual aid, you make sure that the qualifications and the experience level of the personnel you're asking for is at the level of expectation. Uh, you also come in with very specific missions or uh, roles, such as you're saying, this organization will only do this activity so that my internal you know, personnel can focus in this other area. I also think that you're seeing more mutual aid that is not just individuals, particularly in the field. For instance, uh, there's been times where um, I myself have been asked to come in and provide uh, mutual aid in logistics, the warehouses. Certainly, if you take a look at a piece of equipment for my company, it was the same piece of equipment for another company a thousand miles away. So, you know, you're familiar with the material and they just wanted to be able to take their warehouse staff and move them to site locations, remote locations that were trying to resupply um, their personnel closer to the incident while our personnel ran their warehouse, their main warehouse area. Um, you're also seeing it with uh, management as well. I know that during Hurricane Sandy, a number of uh, organizations reached out and, and said, we've got enough field personnel, but can you send me a couple of individuals who are trained in instant command system who can come in and augment some of the staff at the emergency operations center. We're running 24 seven. We don't have enough individuals to run that, that night shift. So then they were able to bring that staff in and you're starting to see it with cyber expertise as well. Certainly if a company becomes overwhelmed with um, uh, some type of a cyber attack and they need more personnel, they can go up to contractors, but if they're not available, you're also seeing companies that have pre-vetted, uh, let's say your, your requirement is, is that you have to have a certain background check to work in an, a, a company A, um, and what they'll do is they'll have a mutual aid with company B and company C, where they'll go to that same background check so that they can feel comfortable bringing those companies, IT specialists to come in and help with, um, with their networks or whatever they're facing. So it is becoming much more um, refined and identified. And the other thing you have to um, keep in consideration is that there's many organizations out there that after an incident are eligible for uh, federal FEMA funds under the Stafford Act. And you have to make sure that the mutual aid agreement and uh, how um, how you ask for those personnel, the, all the agreement um, and uh, requirements you put up front, it all complies with the, uh, the guidelines that are established in that process so that you don't have a reimbursement problem at a later date. Anthony Hurley, good information, my friend. Uh, good to speak with you once more and uh, hope to see you at GSX. Very good. Thank you. Take care, Chuck. This episode of Security Management Highlights is brought to you by Salient Systems, an open video data platform empowering organizations to view, record, and manage video data. Visit them at salientsys.com and booth 2130 at GSX 2022 Atlanta.